Well, you can open your Bible to the book of Psalms. I'm going to preach for a few minutes, and then our brother Bob Shanks will come up and read Psalm 5. And the reason I'm going to kind of split this sermon into two parts is that we're starting a new series. We're starting a new series called Songs of Lament. Songs of Lament. And I want to introduce some of the reason and goals for this new sermon series before we hear God's word read. I think doing that will equip us to hear the word the way we need to hear the word. The second chapter of Timothy Keller's best-selling book, The Reason for God, which I know a number of you have read, um, opens with following quotation. Listen to these words. I just don't believe the God of Christianity exists, said Hillary, an undergrad English major. God allows terrible suffering in the world, so he might be either all-powerful but not good enough to end evil and suffering, or else he might be all-good but not powerful enough to end evil and suffering. Either way, the all-good, all-powerful God of the Bible couldn't exist. This isn't a philosophical issue for me, added Rob, Hillary's boyfriend. This is personal. I won't believe in a God who allows suffering. Even if he, she, or it exists. Maybe God exists. Maybe not. But if he does, he can't be trusted. That assessment is not unusual. That's common. Many times that's just not common in the world. That's, That's common in our hearts sometimes. Even as a church, I think most of us wrestle at some point with the reality of evil and suffering and the implications of evil and suffering for our belief in God, one, and even if we believe he exists, for our attitude toward God. I I mention our attitude toward God because even as Christians who believe God exists, we're not immune to this struggle with suffering and evil. So stop and consider for a moment. There are two questions I want every one of us listening to answer as we begin this series on the songs of lament. Here's the first question. How do you respond to suffering? I didn't say, how do you think you ought to be responding? (laughs) How do you respond to suffering in in your life or in the lives of the people around you? Do do you try to ignore your suffering? To minimize your pain and, and stay positive? Do you try to bury or or drown your suffering in a a sea of frenetic activity, streaming video, or or mind-altering substances. Maybe you fixate on your suffering, or wallow in despair, or, or lash out in anger. Are you consumed with bitterness or vengeance. Maybe, maybe you're shaken with fear, convinced that if things could possibly get worse, they will. Now ask yourself this question. I told you there were two. What does your natural response to suffering say about who you believe God is? Two questions. How do we naturally respond to suffering? I just gave you some examples. Okay, I can relate with all of those. Two, how does your, how does our natural response to suffering, what does that reveal about my belief in God? So think about this. Ignoring suffering says God is irrelevant. Drowning suffering says God is insufficient. Despair in suffering says God is uninvolved. Rage in suffering says God is unjust. And fear in suffering says God is not in control. 
how we respond to suffering always, without exception, says something, reveals something about what we really believe about God. Without fail, you can always connect your response to suffering to your belief or lack thereof in God. That may belief may be true. That may belief may be false. But there's always a connection. How, how do you respond to suffering? What does your natural response to suffering reveal about your belief in God? I have done all of those responses I mentioned. All of them. But by the grace of God, church, I'm also learning that another kind of response to evil and suffering is possible. And it's called a cry of lament. A cry of lament. And, and that's not a word that we use very often. Lament. It sounds kind of old-fashioned, like maybe something miserable poets did on the Scottish countryside or whatever. Okay, so we, so we need to define what do we mean by lament, all right? This word's going to come up over and over again in this series, so, so let me define it up front. According to the Bible, a lament in the midst of suffering, this response that the Bible leads us to choose in our suffering, a biblical lament, involves four things. One, come before God. We're going to talk about that. Two, pour out your complaint. Three, declare your trust in the Lord. And four, ask him to intervene in the situation for your good and his glory. We're going to see those things over and over and over again in this series. Okay, that, that's, that's what a lament is. And here's why this is so important, church. According to the Bible, pain and sorrow are never ends in and of themselves. Okay, they are not intrinsically good because they were not part of God's original design for creation. Let's be clear about that. But pain and sorrow can accomplish great good to the extent that they drive us to relate to our creator in light of whom he has revealed himself to be. That's the goodness in it. They're not intrinsically good, but they can be used for great good. And by the way, please hear this. That's what makes lamenting different from venting. Here we go. All right? There's a difference between lamenting and venting. All right? Venting involves nothing more than getting a few things off your chest by telling God exactly how you feel in the midst of all evil and all suffering. I'm just saying it like it is. I'm just telling him and probably a whole lot of other people exactly how I feel. That's venting. Okay? Lamenting includes telling God how you feel. And in that sense, it's completely and radically honest. But it does more. It does more. It takes the reality of our suffering and all the feelings that we experience in our suffering and it engages with them, it responds to them, it interacts with them in light of the character of God and the ways of God. That's a lament. So hear this, in that sense, a biblical lament may be deeply sorrowful, but it is never sorrow-centered. It's deeply sorrowful, but it's never sorrow-centered. It's God-centered. God-centered. Because a lament perceives the reality of suffering and responds to the reality of suffering from a radically God-centered point of view. That, that's not how we naturally respond to suffering. God-centered point of view. We respond from a self-centered point of view. And that's one of the reasons, because I know my heart, and I don't think I'm alone, that, that I'm eager to take the next couple months to preach through ten different Psalms or songs of lament. Songs of lament. If you don't know this already, probably the greatest concentration of, of songs of lament 
prayers of lament is found in the book of Psalms. I worked through the Psalter over the last year and, and fully over a third of all the Psalms are laments. I had a lot to pick from. <laughs> I wasn't scraping the barrel to find 10. <laughs> To narrow it down. And, and, and these laments, friends, they're as specific as our suffering is varied. So here, here are just a couple that we're going to look at over the next three months. A lament for the guilty. A lament for the innocent. A lament for the betrayed. A lament for the aging. A lament for the ill. A lament in the midst of corporate suffering. A lament when our faith is failing. A lament for victims of injustice. A lament when we are under strong temptation to sin. And a lament when we are lonely. The songs of lament are as specific as our suffering is varied. That's a precious gift. And at the outset of this series, I want to do two things. I want to warn you about something, and I want to remind you of something. Okay, I want to pastor you, I want to shepherd you by warning you of something and reminding you of something. Okay, so, so here's the warning. Here's the warning. It's a warning for the whole series. The Psalms of Lament are not some sort of secret recipe for pushing past the pain of our suffering to the point where it no longer hurts. Why do I say that? Because if you think that, you will hold every one of these songs hostage to do something in your life that God has not said it will do. Don't do that. Don't impose an unbiblical expectation on God simply so you can call him out when he doesn't fulfill it. Okay, these these psalms, these songs are not going to ever lead us to a point where there is no more pain or sorrow in our suffering. As if in this world, we could reach a state where we're just immune. How are you doing? Fine! Your arm is falling off. I know! You know, it's just, no! No, okay, to to the degree we learn to walk the way of lament, we learn to rejoice, to experience genuine joy in the midst of genuine suffering. Because until Jesus comes back, suffering isn't going away. Which is why I'm going to keep talking about this until Jesus comes back, okay? Because until the Lord makes all things new, we're going to keep doing what the Apostle Paul was doing. What was that? Romans 5. He is what? groaning inwardly as he waits eagerly for the adoption of sons, the redemption of our bodies. He's waiting, okay? Yet while we wait, please hear this, we learn to groan in a way that's pleasing to God and brings comfort in the midst of our sorrow. Now let me say something about this comfort in the midst of our sorrow, okay? This comfort is not necessarily in the form of, of a change in our circumstances. We need to hear that. This comfort that God brings in the midst of sorrow until Jesus comes back is not necessarily in the form of a change in our circumstances, but rather in the form of a change in our relationship with the Lord of our circumstances. There is a chasm between those things. God has not promised to comfort you by changing your circumstances. God has promised to comfort you by changing the way you relate with the Lord of your circumstances. That's the goal of lament. Learning to worship God with your suffering and with your pain. Not not to discover this parallel track where it's like pain and suffering go left and you and Jesus go right. (laughs) No, it's, it's worshiping him with your suffering, with your pain. That's the warning, okay? Here's the reminder. Warning, reminder. Here's the reminder. If you are a Christian, you are never alone in your lament. Never alone. Why do I say that? Because if you've repented of your sins, if you're trusting Jesus, not your own good works, to make you right with God, then know this. Your Savior walked the road of suffering before you did. 
Walked it before you did. You are not the first one to walk down this road you're looking at. And know that that even though the Son of God was sinless, he still had to what? He had to learn obedience through what he suffered during his life. Jesus prayed the Psalms of Lament. He prayed them. And, And because the Father always heard and met him in his suffering, we can be confident that the Father will always hear and meet us in our own suffering. Why do I say that? Because to be a Christian is to be united with Christ such that his suffering becomes your suffering and his consolation becomes your consolation. I love how Todd Billings says this. In his book, Rejoicing and Lament, our own loud cries and tears are not those of ones blazing new trails into grief. They are spirit-enabled sharing in the suffering of the one who has plunged even deeper into the darkness than us, yet not without hope. He walked this road before you. But the songs of lament were were his prayers before they became your prayers. And they can become your prayers only because they were first his prayers. Okay, that the one who, who walked the way of lament before you, friend, he stands ready to help you and deliver you even on the days when you feel like venting instead of lamenting. He knows your weakness. He knows your temptation. He he is ready to help, to teach you how to walk the way of lament, how to come before God, how to pour out your complaint, how to declare your trust in the Lord and ask him to intervene for your good and his glory. He's going to help you. He's going to help us. May this sermon series not be an exercise in trying to take our current response to suffering and grab it with our two hands and yank it over to where it needs to be. But rather saying, Lord, I want to believe. Help my unbelief. Amen? Bob, come and read Psalm 5. Yes, Lord. Yes. Yes, Lord, you do that today. Yes. That's a good word. I wanted to begin the series by a preaching from Psalm 5 because I think it illustrates the four elements that I mentioned earlier. Come before God, pour out your complaint, 
declare your trust in the Lord and ask him to intervene for your good and his glory. It's also a general lament. And the superscript, the the little small italic letters, if you're looking at your Bible, right above it, keeping with Jewish tradition, they attribute this psalm to King David, even though we don't know the exact situation that he's experiencing. But, But here's what we do know. We know that the psalmist is experiencing intense suffering at the hands of people who are opposed to him and seeking to harm him. So look at verse 8. Psalm 5, verse 8. The reference here to my enemies is literally translated in Hebrew, the ones who are watching. Okay? It's an image. This is so vivid of people hovering around David. They're they're evaluating his every move. They're they're looking for opportunity to undermine and destroy him. Ever felt that? That he's being oppressed from every side. And and this oppression takes several forms. Look at verse nine. Several forms. How are they oppressing him? For there is no truth in their mouth. Translation, their words can't be trusted. Ever felt that? Their inmost self is destruction. Translation, they want to destroy him. Their throat is an open grave. Translation, their words bring ruin and death. It's a powerful image. Somebody's throat opens to speak and on all David sees is a grave. What's the last thing he says? They flatter with their tongue. They're trying to deceive him with a false impression of speaking the truth. So if you're not feeling it already, the psalmist is navigating what I'll I'll just call a relational minefield. (laughs) Okay? A situation where failure seems more likely than success, where it's exceedingly difficult to distinguish what is true around here from what is false around here, let alone how to respond accordingly. I wonder if a conflict in your family or in your office or, or in your church has ever felt like that. If we're going to rightly interpret and apply the Psalms, we have to learn to read them for what they are. You have to read them for what they are. They are a theology of suffering in poetic form. Poetic form, and like other forms of poetry in Scripture, that means they're going to communicate meaning through images and symbols, like that throat is an open grave. Okay, that's an image. It just grabs you. You, With only a couple words, you get what he was feeling in a way that is way more clear, way more accurate than if he'd written a paragraph of describing it all. That, that image just contains so much meaning. And that's what we want to pay attention to. And, and because of those images and symbols, I think the Psalms, particularly Psalms of Lament, they're often easier to connect to than a historical narrative. You know, so a lot of David's life is found in 1 Samuel, 2 Samuel. But for some reason, because of these images and symbols, I think many of the Psalms of Lament that David wrote, they're, they're easier to connect to. But here's what I want to remind you of, friend. Even though the language is more emotional, the images are more poetic, the book of Psalms, the Songs of Lament, are no less authoritative as a divinely inspired means of communicating the truth about God and what it means to rightly relate to God than all the narrative parts in the Bible. Okay, so just because the language is more symbolic, more poetic, doesn't mean that somehow it's a tad bit less true on the truth scale, <laughs> okay? So we focus on the images, but we remember the meaning in here is authoritative. Okay, now, That raises a question, another question. We're just trying to lay groundwork here for the series, okay? As we work through these psalms, are we twisting or bending the application of a particular psalm, like Psalm 5, if we try to apply it to a situation where the suffering or oppression we're experiencing 
isn't quite exactly like what David was experiencing. Are you tracking with that? Or are we doing violence to the word of God, so to speak, if we say, what well, could go like this? Their throat is an open grave. Oh, this is good. I'm in a relationship right now where it just feels like this other person's words toward me are like an open grave. This is great. This psalm is going to be so helpful. They flatter with their tongue. Oh, great. This person hasn't flattered me yet. Oh, I've got to find another psalm. It's like, is, is that what should, we should be doing? Well, no. No. Okay, your suffering may look and feel different, but there's still truth about who God is and what he's promised to do for his people that's exceedingly relevant in all of our suffering in all of its shades, in all of its variety, okay? So we study the Psalms of Lament not because David's situation is exactly like our situation, but because David's God is our God. That's why we study these, every one of them. Don't come here on a Sunday and say, haven't been betrayed lately, iPhone. You, no. I'm watching you, Wazowski. Don't do that. Every one of these psalms, every one of these songs of lament teaches us something about God. And David's God is your God. No matter whether your suffering looks just like David's suffering. So don't come to these psalms with this comparison metric. It's got to be a one-for-one perfect correlation. Also, I'm not paying attention, Matthew. No. Listen for what it teaches all of us about God. Because that's going to show you how to lament to our God and your suffering. So here's the big idea in Psalm 5. This is going to have to be a really short sermon. Pray for me, Josh. (laughs) Here's the big idea in Psalm 5. Okay? Ready? The justice of God is a refuge for the righteous. The justice of God is a refuge for the righteous. If Psalm 5 establishes one thing it establishes this, that our God is a God of justice, and because of, he's a God of justice, he is a refuge for the righteous. And there are two reasons why we know that, why God's justice is a refuge. And, and that's important to think about because that's not typically how we respond to God's justice. We think of justice as like, well, I'm going to go before the, the justice, the judge, and I sure hope he doesn't, you know, Pay attention to the fact that I was driving 25 over. You know, it's just, we, we think of justice as something we want to kind of get through, get out. Get through, get out. Stay out of trouble. That, that's not biblically how God wants his justice to function, friend. If you're a Christian, God's justice is meant to be a refuge for you. A place of safety, protection, faith, and hope for you. And there are two reasons why that's the case. Two reasons why the justice of God is a refuge for the righteous. Two points this morning. The first one we're going to linger on. The second we'll conclude with, okay? Point number one, God's justice sustains the cry of faith. Sustains the cry of faith. Okay, so so what's going on? David is surrounded by lies. He's surrounded by men who are bent on destroying him. Their words are striking terror and ruin and flattery makes it feel like he can't trust anyone. And in the midst of all that firestorm coming at him and all around him, he does something remarkable. Look at the first two verses. This happens over and over again in the Psalms of Lament. And because it happens over and over again, it's easy to miss. This is remarkable. Verse 1, give ear to my words, O Lord. Consider my groaning. Give attention to the sound of my cry, my King and my God, for to you do I pray. What is the psalmist doing in the midst of his suffering? What's he doing? He's crying out to the Lord. He's crying out to the Lord. Why is that remarkable? Because that's the exact opposite of what we naturally tend to do in our suffering. What do we naturally do in our suffering? We tend to cry to ourselves. We endlessly rehearse and review all the wrongs done against us in our own mind. We tend to cry to other people. We drown anyone who will listen in a deluge of sorrow. 
I want us just to think about that second tendency for just a moment. I think we tried to disguise it with sarcasm on Instagram. I think we spin it in the form of a prayer request on Facebook or a group text. We, we defend it in the name of being real or authentic. And if anyone dares to question our motives, we seize the moral high ground and condemn them for being insensitive or uncaring. Now, am I saying that it's wrong to share your present experience of suffering with other people and ask them to pray for you? No. No, of course not. But I am saying that there's a world of difference between trolling for sympathy because we want other people to make us feel better and crying out to the Lord in our trouble. There is a world of difference between trolling for sympathy, just watching the comments, how many praying hands will I get? and crying out to the Lord in our trouble. World of difference. David didn't look first to other people in his suffering. Nor did he look to himself in his suffering. He looked to the Lord. He groaned to the Lord. It wasn't neat and tidy. It wasn't formal. You know, dearest benevolent God, life is somewhat difficult I have no qualms on the inside because I know exactly who you are. And so when it pleases you, would you be here's two, four, whatever, kind to aid and assist your humble servant with gratitude and anticipation, David? No. It's not formal. It's not tidy, okay? It's loud. Look at verse two. Give attention to the sound of my formal whisper. No, the sound of my cry. I mean, guys, I got to speak to you for just a minute. We live in a world, men, where strength is all about hiding and conquering your weakness. By the way, it's no less true for women, but I think as guys, we're uniquely vulnerable to this. In the kingdom of God, strength is never hiding your weakness. He's crying out to God in your weakness. Do not buy the cultural lie that a strong man simply goes around and slays giants and kills Philistines. David did that. But you know what else he did? He cried out to the Lord in his trouble. And therein was his true strength. Grown to the Lord. It wasn't neat and tidy. It wasn't formal. It was loud. He's a, he's a real human being in real sorrow, crying out in desperate dependence and faith on the only one who is ultimately able to help him. So, so don't try to package all your emotions and feelings and suffering in some sort of religious wrapping so you can airmail them to God. Pour out your heart to him. Cry out to the Lord in your suffering, and plead for him to intervene. And please notice, please notice this, the psalmist isn't just covering his bases. Well, when all else fails, sure, pray. No, no, he he prays with confident expectation. Look at verse 3, confident expectation that God does hear his voice, that God will hear his voice, and that as he pours out his lament to the Lord, the Lord will be faithful to act on his behalf. The whole attitude in verse 3 is one of eager, watchful expectation. His attitude isn't, his cry isn't, well, if you can do anything, have mercy. He's not, nor is he demanding that God still prove why he's worthy of his prayer or worship by getting him out of sorrow. It's like, Lord, if you still want me, get me out of this. No. No, verse three. In the context of faithful worship, in the morning I prepare my sacrifice for you. I prepare my sacrifice and I watch. Cries out to the Lord. And he waits. He watches. 
Now here's the million dollar question. What was it, what in the world was it that gave David confidence to do that? He's suffering, he's oppressed, pours out his heart to the Lord, but it's not desperate, help if you can do anything. It's, it's groaning, it's painful, it's real, but it's confident because he's waiting, expectant, eager. What, what enables him to do that? Well, look at verse four. For you are not a God who delights in wickedness. Evil may not dwell with you. The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all evildoers. You destroy those who speak lies. Okay, the reason he cries out to the Lord with confident expectation of a favorable outcome is that he knows God is a God of justice. He loves and delights in what is right. He hates and abhors what is evil. And he's not just for the principle or the notion of righteousness and against the principle or the notion of wickedness. He is for the righteous. The righteous person. And he is against the wicked, the wicked person. And it's for that reason that David, as a righteous man, knows that God will hear his cry and act on his behalf. He knows God is a God of justice and that his justice is intensely personal. Now maybe you're thinking as I did this week, hold on a minute. Isn't that a little arrogant for the psalmist to presume that that somehow he has his act together? And he is morally superior to all his enemies. I mean, David had some less than stellar moments. (laughs) Top of the list, adultery and murder. So why is it not arrogant for him to take refuge in God's justice and claim his protection and deliverance as a righteous man? Well, look at verse 7. This verse, David begins contrasting God's just response to the wicked in verses 4 to 6 with God's just response to the righteous. Look at verse 7. But I, through the abundance of your steadfast love, will enter your house. I will bow down toward your holy temple in the fear of you. Lead me, O Lord, in your righteousness because of my enemies. Make your way straight before me. Friends, do you realize in that verse is probably the clearest glimpse of the gospel in the entire psalm? That the only reason David knows that he is welcome to enter God's house and enjoy the comfort of God's protection, unlike the wicked, is that he knows God has been merciful to David. It wasn't because David deserved mercy. It was simply because God chose to lavish steadfast love on David in keeping with the covenant that he had made with him in 2 Samuel chapter 7. That's steadfast love. That's that's covenant language. Okay, that's not something David earned. That's a gift he received by faith. So he's not trusting in his own works to make himself righteous in God's sight. He's abandoning that. Forsaking that, he's, he's hoping only in the steadfast love of the Lord. He's, he's locating all his confidence, all his trust in God to make David right with God and bring him into his house. Having brought him into his house, he knows that it's still only God, verse 8, who can keep leading him in the way of righteousness. There is one explanation and one explanation only for why David is among the righteous and not among the wicked. The mercy of God. And he knows that. And so he says, but I, unlike my enemies, I will enter your house, but it is only through the abundance of your steadfast love. Friends, if you're a follower of Jesus, then that is precisely what God has done for you through the gospel. Through Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, he has justly 
declared you to be righteous. He's brought you into his house, into his presence. And even now, he's, he's at work in your life. He's leading you to walk in a way that's pleasing to him through the abundance of his steadfast love. You have been freed to worship and serve and fear the Lord. That's why we're righteous. And the psalmist knows God is a God of justice. He knows he's against the wicked. He's for the righteous. And through the steadfast love of the Lord, he's numbered among the righteous. So listen, the justice of God becomes a powerful incentive for David to cry out to the Lord when he's suffering at the hands of deceitful, wicked men who are working to oppress him. What does that teach us, church? What teaches us, we're going to see this every week in the series, that a biblical lament is a vital expression of faith. Here's where it's different from venting again, okay? Because the only reason you will ever lament your sorrow to the Lord is if two things are true. One, you look at your life and say, this is not the way it ought to be. Two, you look at the Lord and say, I know who you are because of who you've revealed yourself to be in your word. But who you are doesn't line up with what I see. And what I see doesn't line up with what I know who you are. So what am I going to do? I'm going to say, Lord, would you be who you've said you will be? Will you do what you've said you will do? I'm crying out to you to be who you are. That's what a lament does. Over and over again. It's an expression of faith to say through tears. I'm having a hard time believing you're good, Lord. But it's because there's still a small part of me that does that I ask you to intervene. That's faith. That's, I want to believe Help my unbelief. That's what a lament is. It was a refuge for David, God's justice. Because it gave him confidence amidst his tears and groaning that God would hear his request and act on his behalf. And God's justice is meant to be the same comfort for you, friend. To whatever degree you are abused, you are attacked, you're maligned, you're deceived, there is a powerful incentive to prayer and a world of comfort for your soul in knowing that your God is a God of justice and ultimately his justice will prevail. Your God, Christian, is not unconcerned or morally neutral in response to your oppression. He's not. He's for the righteous. He's against the wicked and that makes him a refuge for the righteous And the kind of refuge that sustains a cry of faith. That's point one. I'll conclude with point two. The justice of God is a refuge for the righteous. Two reasons, because it sustains the cry of faith. Second reason, because it guarantees a day of deliverance. It sustains a cry of faith. It guarantees a day of deliverance. It keeps us going. and It gets us there. All right, so think about this. There is a human response. Hopefully many of us in this room are familiar with this. A human longing for justice that responds to moral evil in our workplace, in our society, and the hearts of wicked men all around us by saying, it's not right, it's wrong, I hate it. But sadly, I can't do anything to change it. You ever watch the news or read the BBC? Seen what's going on in Africa, other parts of the world? And something inside you is welled up. That is so wrong. It's not right. I hate that. And then a second thought. I, I am powerless to change that. I, I'm sitting here in America, thousands of miles away, And I can't actually physically do anything right now 
to bring an end to all the suffering that I saw in Zambia. That's a normal human experience. But praise God, friends. That's never his response. To moral evil or the suffering it causes. He is not personally concerned, but unable to act. He is both infinitely concerned and mighty to save. Infinitely concerned, mighty to save. So in verse 10, look at verse 10. David prays for God to not delay his judgment on the wicked. His, his words can seem harsh here. I mean, shouldn't we, shouldn't we really be crying out to God to save our enemies? I mean, didn't Jesus tell us to pray for our enemies? Why, why is David crying out for God to, to judge them? Well, well we're going to circle back around to this whole issue of, of what's called imprecatory psalms uh, later in the series. Don't ask me to do this in five minutes. But, but for now, I want you to remember three things, okay? What's going on here where David is saying, Lord, take out the wicked? Three things. Okay, one, there's an implicit assumption in verse 10 that his enemies have refused to repent and seek forgiveness. Second, the psalmist is only asking God to do what he's promised to do from the beginning of time. Namely, reward the righteous and judge the wicked. If you want proof that God is serious about judging the wicked, then look at the cross of Christ. He doesn't kid around with sin. He's serious about punishing wicked people and wickedness. And he's serious about delivering the righteous and rewarding the righteous. It's all over the Bible. And third... Remember this as you look at verse 10. One of the most consistent themes in the Bible is salvation through judgment. In other words, it's, it's only when the evil inside us and around us is destroyed that our suffering can come to an end. And that's exactly what God did for Israel in delivering them from the Egyptian army with the Red Sea, salvation through judgment. So that's what David's crying out to God to do here. He's saying, God, don't delay, don't wait. Answer me in my distress. Save me by destroying those who are actively seeking to harm me. That's a good prayer to pray, friends. And it's biblical and it's not anti-New Testament. Why not? Because in a world filled with violence and wickedness, what did Jesus command us to pray? Father, deliver us from evil. Deliver us from evil. So we we pray, Lord, you would do that by bringing our enemies to repentance. But if they won't repent, Lord, then take them out and do it quickly. Vindicate your people for the sake of your glory and our good. Cause your justice to prevail. That's not arrogant. That's not self-righteous. And don't let the postmodern ethic in a world that says, how do you know if it's right or wrong, confuse you or cloud you? There is such a thing as right or wrong because there is a God in heaven who has decreed what is right and wrong. And he rewards what is right and he punishes what is wrong. And that is good. And so we pray prayers like this with confident expectation. Because we know that if if you will choose, friend, if you will choose today to take refuge in God, if you are willing to walk the way of righteousness and forsake the way of wickedness, then it is not ultimately the schemes of evil men that will prevail in your life. It is the blessing and favor of God. That's what's going to prevail in your life. Because he's just. Look at verse 12. It's a precious promise here. Eternally comforting expression of the justice of God. For you bless the righteous, O Lord. You cover him with favors with a shield. You bless the righteous, O Lord. You cover him with favor as with a shield. But there's joy in that assurance, friends. That the justice of God is a, a bulwark of protection for your life if you're in Christ. It doesn't mean you'll be spared from trouble, but what does the justice of God guarantee? It guarantees that you'll experience a day of deliverance. 
A day when trouble and suffering is no more. And if it doesn't come to pass in this life, then you can know for sure that it's going to come to pass in the life to come when every man, woman, and child stands before the judgment seat of a just God and sin is no more. And wickedness is done away with. There is a sturdy, strong, backbone of steel kind of hope for the godly and the justice of God. And we need to not be squeamish about that. We're hesitant to find refuge in it. The justice of God is a refuge for the righteous because it sustains the cry of faith and it guarantees a day of deliverance. Listen to one more quote from Todd Billings. Kevin, if you bring the band up, let's close your eyes and listen to this church. These two biblical truths go together. The world, even in the most difficult circumstances that we face in it, is in the hands of God the King. And things are not yet the way they should be. Hence, rather than responding to tragedy like Stoics, the Spirit frees us to cry out in grief and protest and hope. Thy kingdom come. And come, Lord Jesus. Father, I pray that you would use this series, these songs of lament, to teach us to come to you, to pour out our complaint, to declare our trust in the Lord even when it is wavering, and to ask you to intervene for our good and your glory. Teach us to do that. Teach us the way of lament, and start that while we sing now in Jesus' name. Amen.